The Missiles of October, Part 3, The Days of Danger, this time on the Cold War Vault. Day 8, Tuesday, again. At eight in the morning, TASS, the mouthpiece of the Soviet Union, then as it remains today for Russia, began to broadcast the official Soviet response to Kennedy's speech of Monday night. Khrushchev also sent a letter through U.S. Ambassador Foy Kohler to Kennedy. The letter said, I must say frankly that the measures indicated in your statement constitute a serious threat to peace and to the security of nations. We reaffirm that the armaments which are in Cuba, regardless of the classification to which they may belong, are intended solely for defensive purposes in order to secure the Republic of Cuba against the attack of an aggressor. I hope that the United States government will display wisdom and renounce the actions pursued by you, which may lead to catastrophic consequences for world peace. Notably, there were no specific threats to the United States in the letter, something that wasn't in keeping with the usual bravado of the Soviet propaganda machine. This on its own meant something. Every subtlety now, spoken or unspoken, was a message. At 10 a.m., Kennedy began to formalize the blockade now a quarantine, in a meeting of the XCOM. Knowing that actions have reactions, he asked the director of the CIA, John McCone, to come up with a report on what the effect might be of a tit-for-tat blockade on Berlin. Cognizant of every tiny transgression and danger, at least those that they knew about, the XCOM reviewed responses that might be taken if a U-2 spy plane were to be brought down over Cuba. Photographic flights had been stepped up, and it was generally agreed that the service-to-air missile capability installed by the Soviets had become operational. This was particularly dangerous because a U-2 had been brought down by those Soviet defenses in 1960 during the infamous Gary Powers incident. That had required an extensive and involved Soviet effort, but there was no reason to think it couldn't happen again. The XCOM decided that if a U-2 were to be brought down, the specific surface-to-air missile site involved would be attacked and destroyed. If U-2s continued to be harassed, then all of the SAM sites would be destroyed. This is an inflection point. It is a decision that seems straightforward and militarily rational, restrained even, but for reasons that will become clear, following through with that plan could have, and likely would have, triggered an all-out war. At 5.40 that evening, 
Fidel Castro announced a combat alarm and placed the Cuban military on their highest alert status. The mobilization brought the size of the Cuban armed forces to 270,000. At 6 o'clock, in advance of the official quarantine proclamation, the XCOM was informed of two new intelligence discoveries. First, there had been a spike in the coded communications traffic to Soviet ships headed for Cuba. The CIA hadn't broken the codes, and so the meaning of the messages wasn't clear. Second, Soviet submarines had been discovered moving into the Caribbean, which was a decidedly dangerous turn of events. Kennedy signed the proclamation at 7.06 p.m. with the order that the quarantine be enforced starting at 10 the next morning. Day 9, Wednesday, The Quarantine Sometime in the early morning hours, Moscow time, the armed forces of the Warsaw Pact were put on alert. The discharge of troops was frozen and leaves were cancelled for the strategic rocket forces, the air defense units, and the submarine fleet. This put the bloc on a war footing without any ambiguity. Early morning in Washington, D.C. saw interesting developments in the Atlantic. 16 of 19 Soviet ships sailing for Cuba had reversed course and were headed back to the Soviet Union. Khrushchev decided not to challenge the quarantine with weapons-bearing ships. Along with all of the other dangers involved, he wanted to avoid Soviet nuclear weapons and missile technology falling into the hands of the Americans. I will let the irony of that sentiment settle in. Even so, three ships continued. The tanker Bucharest sailed for the quarantine, course and speed unchanged. The Gagarin and the Comilis also seemed ready to challenge the line. They sailed on, escorted by Soviet submarines. At 9.35 a.m., Kennedy and his brother had a brief conversation recalled in Robert Kennedy's 13 days. Pondering the advancing Bucharest and the coming showdown, the president said, It looks really mean, doesn't it? But then, really, there was no other choice. If they get this mean in our part of the world, what will they do next? Robert Kennedy replied, I just don't think there was any choice. And not only that, if you hadn't acted, you would have been impeached. The president agreed. That's what I think. I would have been impeached. At 10 a.m., the XCOM mulled over the looming showdown. It was mean, and it was dangerous. More dangerous than any of them realized. During the meeting, Naval intelligence had discovered that a Soviet submarine had positioned itself between the Gagarin and Komilis. Robert Kennedy remembered that the meeting that morning was the most trying and the most difficult and the most filled with tension. 
McNamara announced that the aircraft carrier USS Essex had been ordered to intercept. And to deal with the submarine, anti-submarine tactics and non-destructive depth charges were to be used to force it to surface. As a note, some historians recall that the non-destructive depth charges were just hand grenades lobbed over the side to create an almighty noise that any submarine commander would realize was a relatively polite signal to surface. The president covered his mouth with one hand and clutched the other into a fist. Robert Kennedy remembered that he seemed lost in the moment, beset by strain and hurt. In all accounts of that moment, Kennedy's sentiments are remembered in the same way. He asked, Isn't there some way we can avoid our first exchange with a submarine? Almost anything but that. But Robert McNamara was firm. A Soviet submarine darting in and out of the quarantine line was too dangerous. The time had come for a decision. But something was afoot in Moscow that would postpone any naval engagement, at least for the day. Only a few miles from the quarantine line, the Gagarin and Komilis began to receive urgent coded messages from Moscow. The captains sent runners to get their respective cryptographers. Not knowing what Moscow might be ordering them to do, the captains considered slowing, but the last orders from Moscow had been to move ahead at full speed, ignoring the quarantine. With very little distance left to spare, the urgently decoded messages were sent to the captains. The Gagarin and Komilis came to a stop. Then, following their new instructions, they turned and moved to a safe distance, cut their engines, and began to drift. It was at this moment that one of the more iconic phrases of the crisis was uttered by Dean Rusk. Actually, it's probably the phrase that is most remembered. He said to McGeorge Bundy, We are eyeball to eyeball, and the other fellow just blinked or something to that effect. A few words about this line and historical facts generally. It bothers me. In the 1974 television drama Missiles of October, the line results in juvenile revelry just short of high fives. What Dean Rusk described in his autobiography as jumping around and clapping as if their high school team had just scored a touchdown. It's really no better in the 2000 film, 13 Days. In reality, it was an offhand remark by Rusk referencing a childhood game he had played in Georgia, a staring contest. Far from a sudden release of nervous tension, it isn't clear that anyone reacted to the remark of the few who heard it, and the atmosphere in the room remained very serious indeed. Another thing about that line is bothersome. Much more than bothersome, really. 
It's that it was leaked by someone in the room that day. Rusk said that the fact that someone leaked it really infuriated him. He said that it was the only leak in his eight years that could have been calamitous. In the middle of the crisis, where any consideration of face or prestige on the part of the Soviets could have made considerable difference, Rusk thought that leaking the remark was incredibly stupid. It really wouldn't have taken much to tip the balance that day. To put Khrushchev in an untenable position with the generals and the political forces surrounding him, who would simply refuse to lose face in the standoff and demand retribution, and really, truly, saving face mattered a great deal to the Soviets. The turnaround of the Gagarin and Komilis was such an embarrassment to the Soviet Navy that for years no Soviet commander would concede that the ships had ever changed course. Khrushchev himself found the decision, wise though it may have been, to be so repugnant that he claimed in his memoir that the two ships sailed right through. And that's how an offhand remark about a child's staring contest might have caused a coup in the Kremlin and a nuclear war by the weekend. So yes, the leak was an incredibly stupid thing to do. As if things weren't stressful enough, the Joint Chiefs directed Strategic Air Command to go to DEFCON 2, one step away from war. The Commander-in-Chief of Strategic Air Command, Thomas Powers, then, apparently on his own authority, began to send uncoded messages to SAC commanders so that the Soviets would be sure to read them. The messages said that the alert was going smoothly and they were well prepared. This was, apparently, to make sure the Soviets knew how very serious SAC was taking its job that day. Kennedy was unaware of the further step toward war, but knowing what he did, he instructed the Department of Defense to draw up two sets of civil defense plans. The first would be for the evacuation, protection, or recovery of coastal areas affected by a conventional attack in a war with Cuba. The second undertook the much bigger problem of civil defense, survival, and recovery for that quarter of the U.S. within the range of the Soviet missiles in Cuba. That night, a small group of family and friends dined with the president at the White House. The journalist Charles Bartlett suggested a toast to the Soviet ships turning around that morning. The president refused. He said, you don't want to celebrate in this game this early. Throughout dinner, he stepped away from the table to hear updates on Soviet ship positions and the situation generally. Eventually, around the dessert course, he came back into the room and announced, Well, we still have 20 chances out of 100 to be at war with Russia. Day 10. Thursday. Drama at the United Nations. 
letter exchanges continued between Washington and Moscow. At 1.45 a.m., a message was sent from Kennedy that said, I regret very much that you still do not appear to understand what it is that has moved us in this matter. I hope that your government will take the necessary action to permit a restoration of the earlier situation. At 7.15 that morning, the aircraft carrier USS Essex and the destroyer USS Gearing hailed and attempted to intercept the Soviet tanker Bucharest. The Gearing used a signaling lamp to make contact. The Bucharest signaled back, My name is Bucharest, Soviet ship from the Black Sea, bound for Cuba. The Bucharest was not considered a threat in that it didn't have the configuration necessary to transport missiles. It was just a tanker, and so Kennedy gave Khrushchev a wide berth for calm consideration and let the Bucharest sail through. We know from the actual events of history that this was the right call, or at the very least it did no harm which was the goal of any move in the most dangerous days. But that didn't stop the president's opponents from haranguing him publicly for going soft on the Russians and letting the Bucharest pass the quarantine. Kennedy had wanted to control the narrative, but a briefing to congressmen and senators on the situation by the State Department resulted in one Republican congressman, James Van Zandt, from Pennsylvania, going public with the news of the Bucharest. This all happened during the XCOM meeting at 5 o'clock that afternoon. When Pierre Salinger told the president what had happened, Kennedy went red in the face. He said, what the hell is going on up there? Well, it fell on Roger Hillsman, the Assistant Secretary of State for Far Eastern Affairs, to call the president and try to explain exactly what the hell was going on up there. Hillsman later recalled that Kennedy gave him a tongue lashing that made the wires sizzle, and that when he was finally permitted to hang up the phone, his morale was, as he put it, very low. McGeorge Bundy attempted to heal Hillsman's rosied rump by calling him a few minutes later. He said, Roger, I was in the room when the president was talking to you, and I just wanted to say that it has happened to all of us. This was also the day that would see another of the most well-known dramas of the crisis. The showdown between Adlai Stevenson and Valerian Zorin, the Soviet ambassador to the UN and a man with a name fit for a villain in Star Trek. Zorin continued to deny that there were missiles and warheads in Cuba, even a day after Khrushchev had admitted as much in back-channel communications with the White House. In fact, Zorin continued to publicly deride the assertion and declared that the photographic evidence was, quote, fake. 
The story of Adlai Stevenson deserves its own telling in the context of the history of the Cold War and Cold War politics. But in general, he was highly regarded for his thoughtful, intellectual, and articulate demeanor. He was also loathed for his thoughtful, intellectual, and articulate demeanor. After failing to capture the Democratic nomination in 1960, losing to John Kennedy, Kennedy appointed him ambassador to the UN. But when the debates in the UN took on exponentially more gravity during the missile crisis, Kennedy had no faith in Adlai Stevenson's ability to confront the Soviets in the United Nations on the matter of the missiles. That was the context that Thursday when Stevenson seemed to sort of lose his cool, for his level-headed personality anyway. Here are a few notable points of the sparring match with Zorin. Stevenson began, I want to say to you, Mr. Zorin, that I do not have your talent for obfuscation, for distortion, for confusing language, and for double talk. And I must confess to you that I am glad that I do not. But if I understood what you said, you said that my position had changed, that today I was defensive because we did not have the evidence to prove our assertions that your government had installed long-range missiles in Cuba. Well, let me say something to you, Mr. Ambassador. We do have the evidence. We have it, and it is clear, and it is incontrovertible. And let me say something else. Those weapons must be taken out of Cuba. To everyone watching on television in the White House, and particularly the Kennedy brothers, this was a shockingly stern Adlai they hadn't seen before. He went on for a while longer and eventually came to the often described dramatic climax. Let me ask you one simple question. Do you, Ambassador Zorin, deny that the USSR has placed and is placing medium and intermediate range missiles and sites in Cuba? Yes or no? Don't wait for the translation, yes or no? <laughs> I'm not, I am not in an American courtroom, sir, and therefore I do not wish to answer a question that is put to me in the fashion in which a prosecutor does. In due course, sir, you will have your reply. World opinion right now, and you can answer yes or no. You have denied that they exist. I want to know if you, if this, if I've understood you correctly. Uh, I should like uh, to say, sir. sir, would you please continue your statement? You will have your answer in due course. I'm prepared to wait for my answer until hell freezes over, if that's your decision. Until hell freezes over, huh? The president was taken aback. He said to the others in the room watching the exchange, I never knew Adlai had it in him. Too bad he didn't show a little more of this steam in the 1956 campaign. On a personal level, Stevenson's friend Jane Dick remembered that he seemed like a person who had been purged of something. He was sitting on top of the world, to hell with it. He had taken a long shot, and it had worked. But the Cold War vault wouldn't be of much interest to you if 
I just related these events the way that they've been described and reenacted countless times. There was a sad irony in that moment at the United Nations. The thoughtful, deliberative, intellectual Adlai Stevenson quickly realized that the moment that so many future generations would remember him for was a hostile confrontation with a Soviet. There is another point I should mention here that would make Stevenson's rhetorical victory there in the Security Council and in the Court of World Opinion a little more ethically and morally ambiguous. Ambassador Zorin was very much in the midst of drastically declining dementia. He came across in the exchange as a hapless, fumbling Soviet mouthpiece. During this time, Arkady Shevchenko remembered that during private meetings, Zorin would go silent, suddenly seem confused, then look up in a daze and ask, what year is this? Adlai Stevenson's famed Security Council victory was against a very sick, very confused old man. And of course, don't let the victorious moment pass by without being at least a little critical of what sprang into Adlai's mind as he lost his cool. Ted Sorensen remarked years later that while it was true that both Kennedys were impressed by Stevenson's dramatic performance, it actually made no logical rhetorical sense. Sorensen said, The one thing we were not prepared to do was wait till hell froze over. We wanted actions from the Soviets fast. Well, whatever the case, it worked. The Soviets were publicly embarrassed and world opinion shifted dramatically in favor of removing the missiles from Cuba. But that didn't slow preparations for a war that seemed just over the horizon. That evening, Kennedy issued National Security Memorandum 199, which allowed, for the first time, the loading of thermonuclear weapons onto quick-response aircraft stationed in NATO countries. It specified that the yield of the weapons would be limited to what would be necessary to ensure a probability of destruction of a Warsaw Pact target. That percentage probability is still redacted in released documents, but it might have been anywhere from 90 to 99 percent. So we are talking about massive thermonuclear weapons. Given the military situation facing the United States, NATO, and the world, Dean Rusk commented that there would be no political objection to this change. And so by morning, the weapons were ready to fly. Day 11, Friday, the first letter. At 7 a.m., the quarantine was enforced for the first time. A dangerous moment, but it had been calculated to be far less volatile than it might otherwise have been. The ship was the Marukla, a liberty ship turned freighter, built by the Americans, owned by Panamanians, flagged in Lebanon, and chartered by the Soviet Union. Kennedy had chosen the ship personally. 
it wasn't actually a Soviet ship, and that would reduce the risk of a direct confrontation. And it was almost certain not to be carrying anything on the list of banned military hardware, which was assumed because of its configuration. So it was an easy mark. Two destroyers intercepted the Marukla as it approached the quarantine. The John Pierce and the Joseph P. Kennedy Jr., named for the oldest Kennedy brother who had died in the Second World War. According to Robert Kennedy, this was a surprise to the president. He told the press secretary, Pierre Salinger, that, quote, the press will never believe we didn't stick the Kennedy in the way of the Marukla just to give the family publicity. And indeed, they didn't. But I've never read anything to indicate that it was a conscious choice, at least not from the White House. With that said, it is certainly a moment that needs to be remembered and investigated. Whether intentional or incidental, it had the potential to look exceptionally arrogant to the Soviet Union at a time when that kind of arrogance might have been highly destabilizing. Again, by luck or providence, the incident was uncontested by the Soviet Union. The Marukla was boarded at 8 a.m. and inspected. No weapons were found, and the ship was allowed to sail on to Cuba. It was clear on the morning of the 26th that there would be no easy victory if the missiles in Cuba had to be taken out by force. The president said firmly and frankly to the XCOM, we are going to have to face the fact that if we do invade, by the time we get to these sites after a very bloody fight, they will be pointed at us. And we must further accept the possibility that when military hostilities first begin, they will be fired. Robert McNamara reported that the Pentagon analysis indicated that there would be very heavy casualties from an invasion. Though he couldn't have known just how heavy, that would come decades later. Still, the official casualty estimate for the first 10 days of fighting placed the number at 18,484, mostly Marines. Kennedy ordered the State Department to create some kind of emergency plan for establishing a civil government in Cuba after the invasion and occupation, which indicates how large that option still loomed in the minds of the XCOM and the president himself. This, as I will explain later, would have been absolutely catastrophic. That evening, the famous first letter from Khrushchev would arrive at the president's desk. This is also a turning point because it eventually became the route the president would take out of the crisis. In all retellings of the story, the letter is characterized as worried, even frantic, but sincere, and was directly from the Soviet premier. But let me take you a little deeper to demonstrate the human dimension, and to remind us all, again, of how important individuals were in the events of the crisis. Even in the Soviet Union, so often bogged down in bureaucratic committee. 
at 4.42 p.m. Moscow time, and eight hours earlier in Washington, a Kremlin courier arrived at the U.S. Embassy, breathless and disheveled. The package was a letter to Kennedy, signed in violet ink, in Khrushchev. This was remarkable. In the past, the embassy was asked to pick up such packages from the foreign ministry, but that official channel had been bypassed. The courier handed the letter to the Counselor for Foreign Affairs, Richard Davies. He apologized for the lack of an official seal from the foreign ministry, but said that he had been ordered to go directly to the U.S. Embassy from the Kremlin without stopping for that formality. Richard Davies looked over the letter and saw signs that Khrushchev had written the letter personally and in a hurry. Davies said, it was all jumbled up. There were corrections made in violet ink in the same hand as that of the signature. Words were crossed out and other words written in. While several embassy translators worked on the letter, the U.S. ambassador to the Soviet Union, Foy Kohler, cabled Washington that it might be the breakthrough they had been waiting for and hoping for. Almost unbelievably, in a nuclear-armed world in which missiles from the Soviet Union would take 30 minutes to reach the United States and missiles from Cuba might take only five to obliterate Washington, D.C., the translated plea from Khrushchev took eight hours to reach Dean Rusk's office in the State Department. Even then, it was transmitted in four segments, each requiring its own delay for encryption and decryption. Present in Rusk's office were Robert McNamara, Robert Kennedy, McGeorge Bundy, Tommy Thompson, and a few others who read the segments as they arrived, as if under a diplomatic microscope. Tommy Thompson, who perhaps knew more about Khrushchev personally than anyone in the room, believed the letter had been dictated directly by him in a private space in which no one could modify it. Thompson also noted that Khrushchev was clearly under considerable strain. Dean Rusk found the letter to show that Khrushchev was, in his words, disturbed and trying to find a way to get out of the predicament. Dean Acheson, who had been brought back into the White House to advise on the XCOM, said that the text was both confused and maudlin, and that Khrushchev was either scared or drunk. But back to that transmission delay from Moscow to Washington. It had bothered Kennedy throughout the crisis, and this was an instance in which direct communication would have proven a critical turning point. If the letter had been translated and transmitted after it had been received in Moscow, Friday morning in Washington, then the president could have accepted it and acknowledged it as the basis for some kind of agreement to end the crisis. But it had taken most of the working day, and by the time Khrushchev's letter had been received and discussed, it was after 1 a.m. in Moscow, and so Kennedy had to wait to respond. And so Friday night was another long, dark night of the soul in both Washington and Moscow, as the XCOM sized up Khrushchev's intent and waited to be able to communicate with the Kremlin in the morning. 
As Khrushchev waited for a reply to his letter, he proposed that the members of the Presidium go to the theater. He thought that it might go a long way toward convincing the population of the Soviet Union and the world that the situation was still calm and manageable. Khrushchev took Kozlov, Brezhnev, and other officials to a concert of Cuban music. Things were no less odd in the White House. On Friday night, the XCOM came back together at 10 p.m. Dean Rusk and Tommy Thompson felt that the Khrushchev letter was vague, but most of the committee felt that it was a break in the clouds of the crisis, and that lifted spirits slightly. Robert Kennedy remembers driving home that night from the State Department with a slight feeling of optimism, as he put it, brought about at least in part by the fact that he saw his brother, for the first time in the crisis, hopeful that their efforts might be successful. The president maintained his sense of humor, at the very least. The West Wing had been filled with additional clerical help from the Commerce Department to cope with the increased workload brought on by the crisis. Kennedy spotted one of the new secretaries and quietly said to Robert McNamara, Why don't you get her name? We may not have a nuclear war tonight. Whatever degree of seriousness you may attribute to this very Kennedy remark, his consistent libido didn't get in the way of his continued realization of the gravity of their choices. In a brief exchange with Pierre Salinger in the Oval Office, after the XCOM meeting had concluded, Kennedy asked, Do you think the people in that room realize that if we make a mistake, there may be 200 million dead? Thank you for listening to this episode of the Cold War Vault. It was researched, written, and produced by DJ Kinney. That's me. I want to thank the listeners who have reminded me to put a bibliography for this series in the show notes on coldwarvault.com. You can also find some images and documents there for further exploration. Like and subscribe to The Vault on Facebook and Twitter at Cold War Vault. And of course, please subscribe to the show anywhere you get your favorite podcasts. Be glad you're not trapped in a fallout shelter with an enraged Fidel Castro. Until next time.